It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nature in experiment. Why is life so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's... I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, probing the properties of Einsteinium and getting a computer to calculate new mathematical conjectures. I'm Nick Pertridge Howe. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. To start off the show, I'd just like to say it is great to have Nick Petrich Howe on for the first time. That's right. I've uh, changed my name to match my wife's surname and only three years after we actually got married. Well, yeah, better late than never. So back to the pod. What have we got first this week? Well, this week I've been talking to a researcher who's into heavy metal. So my field of interest is the coordination and biological chemistry of heavy elements. This is Rebecca Abigail, a chemist from the University of California, Berkeley, and the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And when she says heavy elements, she means it. She focuses on the actinides, the elements that hang out right at the bottom of the periodic table. So when we look at the actinide series, there are, you know, over a dozen elements. But what we're, we're really interested in are elements beyond plutonium. So the transplutonium series, they're not very much explored. The reason we don't know a lot about these elements is because they don't occur naturally. They have to be man-made through highly intense processes. In fact, they were first discovered during the nuclear test of the Manhattan Project, so it's hard to get a lot of them. Also, they're all radioactive, so even if you can get some, you can't keep hold of it for very long before it decays. But this week in Nature, Rebecca has been trying to close this knowledge gap by examining one of the transplutonium elements, Einsteinium. For Einsteinium, the issue of radioactive decay and scarcity was amplified. This is a particularly heavy transplutonium element. Rebecca was only able to get a hold of a few hundred nanograms, and even then there was quite a lot of its neighbouring element in the sample, as it's so difficult to purify. All the while, it was rapidly disappearing. So all in all, it means that you have to be very precise, very quick, well prepared, and make sure everybody is safe. It also meant that some of the typical ways that chemists examine elements weren't possible. 
but Rebecca was able to access a particularly precise kind of X-ray produced by a particle accelerator, which allowed her to probe Einsteinium and find out how it bonds to other atoms. We were able to determine a bond distance for Einsteinium, and that means you know the, the length between Einsteinium and a coordinating atom, so an atom that is binding or attached to the metal. And that bond length was shorter than what we expected. This wasn't the only surprise, though, as Rebecca also investigated how Einsteinium reacted to light. When we shine light on our sample, um, it absorbs light, and that gets transferred through various processes into other light emitted from the complex. And what we observed is that we could, you know, we could shift the the luminescence emission from the Einsteinium in a way that was different from the way we shift the luminescence of other metals. And so again, it behaves differently from what we expected. And so that tells us that there is something special about Einsteinium and that it, it doesn't behave as we expected. Einsteinium seems quite different from what you'd expect given what we know of its lighter neighbours. Rebecca didn't want to speculate too much on why this might be, but it could be down to its electrons. It has to do with the interactions between the electrons themselves and the constituent of the nucleus in the Einsteinium atom. So how the electrons are distributed around the nucleus in Einsteinium and how they spin around, really, that will affect how the metal will bind to other atoms and molecules. So what we're trying to understand now is, you know, why, why did we observe this? And, and what is the phenomenon that drives this difference? Whatever it is that is driving Einsteinium's oddity, its unusual properties could be a sign of things to come in the periodic table. Einsteinium is the heaviest element to have undergone such analyses, and it could be that heavier elements still display similar weirdness. We really don't know. But Rebecca's research may lay the groundwork for finding out. We're really charting the path for doing more of this work. You know, if we have access to this material again, we have access to all these different facilities, other folks may have access to other facilities where, you know, we could we could really start building upon this and getting more data so that, yes, at some point, maybe we'll have a better understanding of, of how these elements behave. And that will help us go back to look at the earlier actinides and maybe revisit some of the theories that we've established to explain their chemical behavior. You know, even though this it seems really just a fundamental result, uh, an element that may not have too many applications, we may be able to go back in the series and, and start understanding some other properties that didn't necessarily fit, you know, the expectations or the theory, you know, properly. That was Rebecca Abigail. To learn more about Einsteinium and its peculiar properties, make sure you check out the show notes, where there'll be a link to Rebecca's paper. Some listeners may be already aware, but this is just a short PSA that Coronapod, which would have normally been around now, is a separate show again. Make sure you keep an eye on your podcast feed for that later this week. Back to the current show, and coming up, we'll be talking about how a computer is coming up with new ways to calculate famous numbers. Right now, though, Dan Fox is here with the research highlights. An atmospheric mystery is afoot as despite being banned, three ozone-depleting chemicals have been found by scientists in the Earth's atmosphere. The 1987 Montreal Protocol limits production of dangerous chemicals that can gnaw away at the Earth's protective ozone layer, 
But researchers analysing air samples gathered around the world have found such a compound, the catchily named HCFC-132b. Analysis of archived samples revealed the compound first showed up around two decades ago. Since then, levels of the chemical, which seems to be coming from factories in East Asia, have trended upwards. The team also detected two other compounds. However, none of the three have any known industrial use, making their source puzzling. Read more about that research in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Scientists investigating the rise of ride-sharing services in the US have found that they may not have as positive an impact on transportation as once hoped. Ride-sharing giants Uber and Lyft began operating in the United States in 2010 and 2012 respectively and promote car-sharing as a sustainable way to increase urban mobility. But researchers trying to quantify the service's impact by analysing transport data from across the US found ride-sharing barely had an effect on private car ownership. However, the use of public transport declined by almost 9%. They also saw that traffic jams become more frequent and intense in cities where car-sharing services were available. They noted that while the idea of sharing remains a promising solution to urban transport challenges, Translating that potential into success is a more complex proposition. Take a ride over to Nature Sustainability to read that research in full. Next up on the show, Nature's Davide Castelvecchi has been finding out about a new method to calculate some well-known numbers. The field of mathematics is littered with numbers that are so important that they are known by a symbol or a name. You certainly learnt about one of the most famous ones at school, pi, a number that begins with 3.14 before its decimals stretch out forever. Physicists call such numbers fundamental constants, and many of them share pi's infinite length. These numbers play key roles in fields as diverse as calculus, quantum mechanics and statistics. But there's still a lot that we don't understand about them, despite some of them being studied since the time of the ancient Greeks. Now, though, a very modern method might help to speed up how quickly we can learn things about them. We have those constants that have an infinite number of digits representing them. Where does it end? What is really the internal structure that helps us understand what's that number coming from? This is Ido Kaminer, a physicist from the Technion Israel Institute of Technology, who's interested in finding out more about fundamental constants and formulas for calculating them. I always thought that there is so much data in them that there has to be a way to apply computers to use this data, to convert it into new formulas. This week in Nature, Ido and his colleagues have shown a way to do just that. They've created artificial intelligence algorithms that can probe these fundamental constants and come up with new formulas for calculating them. They call the system the Ramanujan machine, after Srinivasa Ramanujan, a mathematician who was active in the early 1900s and was famous for coming up with new formulas in his dreams. To put the system through its paces, the team focused first on that well-known fundamental constant, 
they delved into the history books to look at the work of another famous mathematician, Carl Friedrich Gauss. He discovered some famous formulas for calculating pi, known as continued fractions. Apparently Gauss, known as the prince of mathematics, had several such continued fractions for pi. And then we thought, well, he has a couple of them. So what's the chance that those are all the formulas that are possible? There has to be more. So we thought, okay, let's try to develop an algorithm that will be able to, on the one side, also discover the results that Gauss already found. We can think about it as a sanity check. And on the other side, also discover new ones if they exist. The Ramanujan machine starts from one well-known formula for calculating the digits of pi. From those digits, it then tries to guess a new formula that does the same job just as well, at least for the first few thousand digits. But will the new formula continue to produce the correct digits forever? All the computer can do is give a good guess, or what mathematicians call a conjecture. Of course, no conceivable computer could calculate an infinite number of digits to show that the conjecture is 100% correct. So it's then up to humans to prove that the formula gives the correct value for pi. In the end, the computer did rediscover the formulas Gauss had found for pi around 200 years ago. But also, it came up with new ones that hadn't been seen before. Yeah, you know, th this was really a, a moment. It's uh, hard to explain how exciting it was after a very long time searching for different ideas and trying different things that all failed. Seeing the first time that the computer gave us a result that didn't seem to match anything that Gauss did or anyone else since then. I remember writing it on a piece of paper, trying to, you know, take a, a calculate it yourself quickly to make sure it's real, because it, it was really a, a moment that's hard to forget. But pi was just the beginning. For pi, we actually know quite a lot already. Finding new formulas for it may be useful if you want to calculate faster, more digits. But I think where the algorithm is really more important is when we look into new constants for which there are still many open questions. Ido has also been using the system to come up with conjectures for calculating other, less understood numbers. One of them is the Catalan constant, a number so mysterious mathematicians can't even decide whether it's a rational or an irrational number. Currently, the Ramanujan machine can only generate these formulas called continued fractions, but Ido hopes that it could be improved upon to create other types of formulas that are important for other areas of mathematics. These could point mathematicians towards connections between branches of maths that people did not suspect existed. But with the new machine's ability to find conjectures, does it risk putting human mathematicians out of a job? Ido doesn't think so. Coming up with new conjectures complements their work, providing new avenues for researchers to follow. For our case, when we bring conjectures, I think it's completely not in a competitive place because it actually produces new directions, new options for things to prove. And that actually happened for us. The first results we found, we went out to the wider community, we published those results online, and indeed mathematicians proposed ideas for how to prove the results we found and indeed proved them. And that also got us to try and develop more complex algorithms that will find more complex results. And by now there are open questions that mathematicians can follow on. I think this is for us the most exciting part because it can create new leads for new mathematics. I don't think it replaces anyone in that sense. Bring only the opposite.
That was Ido Kamina from the Technion Israel Institute of Technology. You can find a link to his paper in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Shamini, what have you found for us to discuss this time? So I'm slightly cheating this week, and what I wanted to talk to you about is a topic that I've already been researching, So I've made a film about it, which is up on our YouTube channel, and it's a sort of mystery from 1959. It's kind of a tragic story where nine students went off on a sort of cross-country skiing slash hiking trip um, in, in the Ural Mountains in Russia, and were later found dead in mysterious circumstances. Oh, okay. This sounds very, yeah, very intriguing, but I know next to nothing about it. So what was particularly mysterious about how they were found? Surely people die on hiking trips all the time. So obviously, sort of cross-country hiking and skiing can be quite perilous. This is a, a really harsh landscape, miles from anywhere, freezing temperatures, there might be blizzards, high winds, frozen rivers, all sorts of things. These people were all very experienced and sort of well prepared for all this. And the real mystery comes from the way that that they were found. So they essentially didn't report back in at the end of this trip and rescue teams were sent out and they eventually found their tent. Um, and the tent had been apparently just abandoned in the middle of the night, cut open from the inside and the hikers had left the tent, in most cases without shoes, certainly without their full sort of protective gear and, and multiple layers. And you know, doing this in in such horrific freezing temperatures, they would have to have had a pretty good reason. And ultimately, they died of hypothermia due to the temperature. But in addition to this, some of them had unusual injuries on their body, so broken bones. Uh, and actually, because it was kind of inexplicable, mysterious, there are pages and pages of, of possible sort of clues and hints and things that people have tried to explain about sort of the way they were found, what they had on them, what they were wearing, what they left in the tent, like where exactly they were. Just mountains of stuff of, of people trying to sort of piece this this incident, this night together, when of course no one survived to be able to tell what actually happened. Okay, so this sounds hugely mysterious, as you said, because it sounds like they cut their way out the tent, they were in a hurry, I'm guessing, and then their bodies were found away from it in strange circumstances. So what have been the theories to explain this? Well, this has been over 60 years now since this incident, so there's been plenty of time for for people to debate various theories. There was a lot of distrust from the time, um, I think particularly from the families, the way the authorities handled it, um, and that led to a lot of feelings that there may have been some sort of cover-up, maybe some sort of Soviet, I don't know, scientific experimentation going on in the area, or something like that, slightly more far-fetched theories maybe uh, that they were attacked by a yeti you know looking at a blurry pic blurry photo of from one of their cameras and being like could this be a yeti oh, we don't know um and that you know it was some sort of force of nature the the idea that it was an avalanche that they were sort of hit by an avalanche uh, has been 
a big one for a long time. But there have always been reasons why that doesn't seem to match the evidence, why like, oh, Avalanche doesn't seem to fit with a lot of things. Right, okay. But I'm guessing, because you made a video about it, we've got some sort of new insight, even though it's been 60 years now since. Yes, new science. So yeah, there's been a new paper which is focusing specifically on the Avalanche theory. And this is by some scientists who in particular study snow and the sort of science of of snow, how it moves, how it works and how avalanches occur. And they've been looking at the possibility that it was a a small slab avalanche, which is a particular particular kind of, of quite dangerous avalanche. And they've been basically trying to show that that does fit with all the evidence and sort of look at the reasons why people think it wasn't that and say, oh, well, here's how we could explain away sort of the counter arguments and explain what you see and show that an avalanche could have explained at least the sort of basics of what happened to the tent, how they got injured and why they initially left the tent. Right. Well, I'm no snow scientist, but surely there would have been some sort of signs of an avalanche if that had been what caused these mysterious deaths. It sounds like the possibility that this paper is putting forward is a sort of quite unusual situation, which could explain why, first off, a bunch of people who were quite familiar with avalanches could have sort of found themselves accidentally hit by one, explains why a bunch of rescuers who know what avalanches look like didn't seem to see one, uh, and might explain why there hasn't been an avalanche there since that anyone's recorded. Uh, And it's all to do with sort of quite complex details about the topography of the precise slope where they pitched their tent that night and the speed of the winds, the types of snow in different layers. But this analysis and and the authors are quite keen that they're not sort of hiding this away. They're sort of putting this out there and saying, look, here's, here's our data. Here's why we think that this was possible. A sort of small but, you know, ultimately deadly avalanche on a relatively shallow slope. And they're putting that out there as a possible explanation for these deaths. Right, so this sort of small, unusual avalanche might have caused it. But then you said they had injuries and things on them. Were they they hit by the avalanche? Like, how does it explain some aspects of that? Yeah, so, um, I I mean, people do get injured in avalanches, but usually they're sort of, they've been skiing and they're sort of tumbling down a hill and and the, the, the types of injuries that they have are quite different. In this case, what the sort of paper hypothesizes is that the hikers were sleeping on a sort of quite hard flat surface when a large slab of snow fell straight down on top of them, which is not usually how avalanches go um, and could explain, you know, like a, a crushed rib or fractured skull. And, you know, we think of snow as um, nice and soft and fluffy, but uh, absolutely in the, in the wrong situation, it can be very heavy and, and very dangerous. Hmm, I feel like I need some sort of visual to help me understand this properly, but it sounds like we've got a video for it. (laughs) It does. You're so good at plugging my videos. I love it, Nick. Thank you. Um, Yes, you should go and watch. No, it is is quite useful. So they've got some um, sort of models um, there. And actually, the really fascinating thing when, when I was making the video is that most of the students who went out on this trip had 
cameras with them. So we have so many photos, not obviously of, of the sort of incident, nothing from, from that night, but of them sort of laughing and, and, and having, a, having a great time sort of skiing through blizzards and, and putting up their tent in these sort of harsh circumstances. And it's, it's really quite quite haunting to see and to know that we'll never really know the sort of full story of what happened and and uh, you know actually even even after 60 years this this mystery is going to last because mm, as you said they haven't firmly solved this one way or another they're just putting this out as their theory of what might have happened and might explain some of this yeah they don't they don't they don't claim to have solved it i'm sure lots of people will think that this is a definitive solution a lot of people will think their own different theory is the definitive solution but they don't claim to be proving anything they just want to show that it was plausible and and they put forward a pretty convincing case so yeah people will have to go look for themselves well, it certainly sounds like a very intriguing story, and I'll be curious to see the video, uh, which is on our YouTube channel. But for my story this week, I've also been looking at new data that may disprove old theories, although they're not quite as old. And I've been looking at the life on Venus via phosphine thing that you may have seen in the past few months. I, yeah, so I feel like I remember this. This was a, a big news story, because obviously we're always looking for life here there and everywhere and this was was this was this a sign of life was this a hint of life did we think that there was life on venus yeah so phosphine was a gas that was detected in venus's atmosphere and phosphine on earth is produced by microbes or by industrial applications and there didn't seem to be a good explanation of why it might occur in the atmosphere in venus so some scientists suggested that it could possibly be a hint of life on Venus, maybe some sort of microbial life floating about in the clouds. Oh wow, okay, awesome. Yeah, so if there's if there's phosphine gas there, could there be life there? We we're just detecting the the sort of side product of it. And so you've got an update. Is it is it an exciting update? Um, aliens on Venus, please. I don't think we can say aliens on Venus yet, but we can't also definitively say <laughs> not aliens on Venus yet. But this seems to be a very strong challenge to the claim that there might be life on Venus. Well, this is really just about phosphine, which so far is the only indication that there could be life on Venus. And so this counterclaim is the biggest challenge so far to the fact that phosphine was detected in the atmosphere. So essentially... What this is about is scientists have re-examined the data that originally showed phosphine and said, actually, it could just be sulfur dioxide, which is quite a common gas in Venus's atmosphere and so wouldn't be a sign of life. Well, that sounds very disappointing, but surely they can, surely we can tell the difference between phosphine and, and sulfur dioxide. Yes, and the original researchers did do some work to try and do that, and they used two different telescopes from two different locations on Earth to sort of map out this data and look at the absorbance, because sulfur dioxide and phosphine, they have very similar absorbance wavelengths, so when you look at them through telescopes, they look kind of similar. But they looked with another telescope as well to sort of try and figure out if it's sulfur dioxide or phosphine, and the data from that telescope seemed to suggest that actually, no, it wasn't sulfur dioxide, and so therefore it should be phosphine. But now researchers have re-examined that data, 
And it looks like it may have just been processed incorrectly from the observatory. Oh, so this isn't just the sort of latest update. It could have actually been that there was a mistake in that sort of original paper. Yeah, it could be that some of the data just wasn't processed properly. And that's what led to this result. And the researchers who have looked at it in this latest work have suggested that all signs point to sulfur dioxide, which, as I said, is quite common in Venus's atmosphere, so wouldn't be a sign of life. Well, slightly disappointing updates there then, but glad that they've been able to look at the the data in in more detail and and potentially remove any errors. And and they can keep looking for other signs of life. I, I, I hold out hope. Indeed. Well, maybe there'll be some signs in the future. Who knows? But I think that's all we've got time for on the briefing chat this week. Thanks for talking to me, Shamini. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about all the stories we discussed, you can find links to them in the show notes. And if you want even more stories like this, but delivered straight to your inbox, then make sure to sign up to The Nature Briefing. There'll be a link in the show notes where you can do just that. And don't forget, link to our YouTube channel as well, and the Dyatlov Pass video, as well as all the other wonderful mini documentaries that we make. That's all for this week from us, but don't forget the Coronapod will be coming out later this week. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.